Hey everyone, this is Stacy and Cliff again, and we are back with part two in our cybersecurity awareness series. Part one, if you didn't catch that one already, we covered digital presence with social media and it was good. I actually did it, Cliff. I went through, you talked about the security sections, you really laid out like highlighted areas you needed to look at. <laughs> so I, I did it. And my first intention was Oh, I'm going to do it for time. Like this, it'll be fast. I'm going to breathe through this real quick. I didn't. Honestly, I would recommend just taking your time with it because there's a lot in there and I didn't realize how much was in there. And there's definitely, I've looked at it before, but it's been a long time and there's definitely some new stuff in there. You mentioned that for sure. It was eye-opening for sure. So. Fantastic. I love to hear you spend the time to do that. I love to give everyone a, hey, it's only going to take you seven minutes to do this. Don't, don't worry about it. Like do it at the end of the day, kick your feet up, get comfy and really scroll through your security section, basically of your social media. So it was worth the time for sure. It still weirds me out. There's definitely stuff on there where I'm still like, why is it doing that? How does it know this type thing? But much more secure now than I was before. So thank you for that. Today is part two. And this time Cliff is going to take us through security awareness password management and browser use. So these are some big ones for all of us to pay attention to. You had some interesting data before on passwords and what makes a strong one. So I'm excited to get, get into this. Thank you for coming back to do some more work with this here too. And I'm just going to let you go with it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I love coming on here to talk to you guys about security. So the first thing I want to say, which is one of the easier things that we can kind of manage on our own side is using a password manager. I've probably been using one now for maybe five years, and it makes the organization of your passwords and usernames so much easier. So it definitely can take a little bit of time to get set up depending on what kind you're using or which application you're using, but it's well worth it. I used to use LastPass. Unfortunately, I don't recommend using them right now. They had an issue where they were compromised a little bit back. And, and I'm sure that they got that resolved and that kind of stuff. They made all these improvements, but it's kind of a little bit too late now. So I'll leave it up to you, but I wouldn't recommend using it. I now use one password. There are a ton of good ones out there. The biggest thing is you really need to make sure it meets your requirements. So is it an offline password? Is it an online password? Do you want to use it on multiple devices or do you want to keep it all local where you have 100% management of it and there's no access to the internet, that kind of thing. So, but the biggest thing is these apps can automatically create new passwords for you just by a click of a button. It can manage all of your logins and for one password, for instance, can work on every device. It works on Linux, Mac, Windows, browsers within your your phone, browsers within your operating systems, everything. So I have no issues with anything that I use to incorporate one password to help manage my passwords and usernames. They're pretty customizable. You can have tons of different parameters for your passwords. You can set uh, the character limit to use symbols, numbers, that kind of stuff, make it readable, how many words do you want it, all that kind of stuff. So it's very customizable. It also can help you automatically input your username and password for all the apps and sites. So once you give it access to, let's say, my Firefox and Chrome browser on my computer, or I give it access to my phone, when I automatically go to an app or a website, it can automatically notify you to input those. So that's great. And, and I would say probably for the last few years now, security experts are recommend using password managers as well as like different usernames and different websites or different passwords for each website. And this is very helpful in that way. So Give a quick example. Why would you want to change your username? So 
from an OSINT, like an open source intelligent and open source research perspective, if I'm doing an investigation on someone or something like that, I can go run a username that I have. And I pulled up an example right here. Checkusernames.com is one of them. There's a whole bunch of websites you can do. But let's say I did like gymrat32 and I checked that username. I can see it runs a query against hundreds of different websites to see where that username is active. And why that is important is because someone can easily do a check on someone on your username if they know your username or if they've seen you online or anything like that and automatically use that to see most likely if that's you on those other platforms. So I, for the last couple of years now, I've been trying to change usernames for everything. It used to be everyone would use the same username for all their banking and all this kind of stuff just to make it more memorable. But that's the whole point of the password managers is you want to make them not memorable and all different. So that's what I would say for password managers. Please use those. It definitely helps a lot. I have a question here with the password managers. So is that like a one person, one account type thing or like with, with your spouse, your partner, what are you doing to share? Like, okay, if you have the same account, they need access to that password too. What is your recommendation for best practices there? Yeah, so I can't speak to all the password managers, but with one password, I do have the family plan. So my wife has her own account. I have my own account. We each have our passwords saved in what they call a vault, but there's also a shared vault that either one of us can add our passwords for shared accounts into that vault. And they also have a really good end-to-end encrypted password sharing system through their, it's probably on some servers that they own, but I can send a text message with a website where she has to log in to her 1Password account to verify it's her. And then she can have access to that password, even if it's for a temporary few minutes or just access at one time. So yeah, there's some definitely good sharing practices being used by some of these password managers for those exact situations. Okay, that's really helpful to know. So probably something if someone's considering that, check that with the requirements you're looking at for whatever password manager you're researching. So no, that's helpful to know for sure. Definitely. Next thing, which is, you know, very related to passwords and credentials and things like that is one thing that I see that people don't do a lot is changing default credentials. And, and what that would be is like when you get your Wi-Fi set up in the house, your router and your modem will probably have some kind of default credentials, which might be like the username is admin and the password is password. And <laughs> that's just one of the things that many people do not think about that should definitely be done. And this could be any kind of device too. It could be something like an IoT device, like your TV or something like that, anything like that. So always check these default credentials and change them. And guess what? You can save them in the password manager to help you remember. So please change those and store those in your password manager. Next biggest thing that I would say is very important is keeping everything up to date. Your devices, operating systems, your applications also includes a lot more than that, that some people don't think of. So anything in your house or interact with, so like all these IoT devices, any kind of device that has like maybe web access in your car, some of those radio head units, that kind of stuff. These all need to be updated whenever they have available updates. First thing I would say with that is make sure everything has automatic updates turned on where it notifies you pretty much as soon as you can when you can update it. So immediately notify you when it can be updated and downloaded and installed. There's a lot more risk with this than people think there is. So especially with security updates. And what I mean by that is it's an update that's specific to security as opposed to maybe just making like a quality of life improvement. So big one that they call is Patch Tuesday when Microsoft releases all their patches for their operating systems. There's several different updates in there 
but some of them are security updates. And those are going to be the big ones that you want to pay attention to for security reasons. So how that comes along is, is when a company is made aware of a potential vulnerability and they provide a patch to fix it if possible. So, and usually when these vulnerabilities are found, it's because some kind of researcher found it and gave it to them. They found it internally, or maybe some kind of white hat hacker found it, or it's because it was actually exploited. I mean, someone found that vulnerability, that weakness, and they used something bad to gain access or to have it do something that it wasn't meant to do. So when they find out about these, they usually put out a security update as quick as they can to fix that issue. And I'm not sure if you caught what I was saying there, but when these are put out, they usually list the issue that happened. So when the security update is released to the public for install and to fix your device, it's released to everybody to be aware of what that actual vulnerability was and where that weakness is in the application of that software. So anybody that has technical aptitude to use an exploit against it can do it. So in layman's terms, in our world, if you have a Windows computer and there's a security update put out and you waited a month to install it, any kind of hacker could potentially use that exploit on that vulnerability on your machine because it wasn't patched and wasn't fixed. Okay, so it's been publicly announced at that point. <laughs> yes, and exactly. So it's on you to to make sure that the update is being actually done on your devices. Right. Okay, so how often then would you recommend people check for updates? Is it a daily thing or weekly or what would be like a good kind of battle rhythm there? So like I said before, definitely make sure it's on automatic. Okay. And unfortunately, there are kind of like different guidelines of automatic updates. You have to like really just check the settings of each device and application on how the updates work. I probably do it weekly, if not more, just because I'm always in the settings of my devices and randomly checking. All right. So if you're at least doing it weekly, good. But otherwise, automatic those things. Still check on it. <laughs> make Definitely. sure it's doing what it's supposed to, for sure. Okay. No, that'll mm-hmm. get done. But I can't tell you how many iPhones I see with that little red bubble by the settings because they're putting off their updates for their operating system. So don't be that person. (laughs) Don't be that person. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next piece, multi-factor authentication. This one's easy to do pretty much for everybody and very useful in protecting your accounts. So I have uh, several different apps that I use. I use three of them mainly, Microsoft Authenticator, Google Authenticator, and Authy. I literally have probably over 40 or 50 accounts between those three apps that use multi-factor authentication. And just a quick recap or or a summary, a multi-factor authentication is you go to your bank account and you put in your username and password, you click enter to log in. In many cases, like boom, you're in, right? But in the security world, we want to make sure it's actually you. So they do what's called multi-factor authentication. You had previously authenticated with the username and password, but now we want you to authenticate with something else. So maybe it sends you a text message and you have to put in the code or you open an app and click accept, or you open an app to get a six digit code and put it in that website as well. Something of that sort. Other multi-factor could be like your face recognition or fingerprint recognition. Those are all different authentication methods. And essentially we wanna use more than just one. If a hacker were to get your username and password with no protections on it, I could easily just go log in to anybody's bank account or their social media, whatever it is. But once you have multi-factor authentication implemented, it gets a lot more difficult and harder to compromise. And really what we're doing in the security world from a user standpoint is we don't want to be the lowest hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is as a hacker is going to go for the easiest target and you don't want to be the easiest target. Essentially, if someone wants to 
get into your stuff, it's inevitable as long as they have unlimited time and resources. But usually they just want to be a quick win and they'll go spam or attack a lot of people at once or take breach data for usernames and passwords and try all of them until one of them doesn't have a multi-factor authentication. That's usually the approach for easy targets. Yeah, okay. That just seems like a pretty fairly easy fix to make you not as vulnerable for sure for that kind of attack. Definitely. I would say these first few things we talked about puts you way higher on the totem pole from vulnerability and, and the weaknesses that are out there to protect you from that lowest hanging fruit. Okay, so password managers and then the multi-factor authentication. Yep. Are the two, just to recap that, and we'll put in the show notes to the summary, some of the stuff that you're recommending here, links and things that will help reference what you're talking about here too. You've had mentioned several things now, so we'll we'll capture those as well for anyone taking notes. Perfect. Going into a little bit more security awareness stuff, we talk about some attacks and things like that. So like, let's go into a phishing email. So one thing that I really like about password managers, which helps with phishing emails is it can really help guide you or alleviate fake websites. That's very common with scams, phishing attacks, phishing emails, smishing, that kind of stuff. And and what, what I mean by that is you get an email and it's a targeted email. It's a phishing email. There's a link on it. Let's say you click the link, right? We, you never know. I'm sure we make mistakes. You should never click a link in an email without verifying. But if you do, and it takes you to wellfargo.com instead of wellsfargo.com. Mm-hmm. And we actually get really good at this. All they do is change the, the name a little bit and they might completely replicate that website into this fake website to make you think you know what you're doing. Right. So that's what a phishing email is. It's, it's getting you to do something that you think is right, which is incorrect. They want you to do something that you wouldn't have done knowingly. Right. So and then how we would alleviate that is password managers help with it. But we always verify what websites we're clicking, anything in the information on that email. You can usually tell pretty quickly from who it's from, the websites in there, if there's links in there, if there's attachments. Those are pretty big red flags and notifiers that it's not what you're thinking. But if you do click it, uh, password managers can help because when you save those passwords and usernames to a profile, it creates a profile based on a website. So. When I go to wellsfargo.com, it automatically prompts me to put in my username and password, right? But when I go to wellsfargo.com, I'm like, oh, that's weird. My one password didn't prompt me to put in the password, and it always does when I go to this website. So that was just a small little thing. I love that password managers help with that a little bit. So these are things you might not notice right away. These hackers are getting way better. They're making these websites look really good. They're making these phishing emails look really good. So use the password manager for what it's worth. Yes, they are. I've gotten several of these. It's always like really popular before the holiday season, I feel like too. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten some emails that do look really legit. Like, and I know to look for like those little nuances, like you're talking about, okay, a letter's missing here. The name's just off there or something in there, but boy, they can look really good. But so like also like never clicking anything from there. If you don't think you ordered it, Go to the actual website and check from there. If you have an order pending somewhere or some package Mm -hmm. randomly floating in some warehouse out there, that's been a big one lately too. Yeah. And when you get that email or the text message that says you want a free five-day cruise, it's probably too good to be true. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, no, no, not this time. (laughs) So recap on phishing email. I know I kind of went off on some tangents on that. But so a phishing email is an email that's targeted at you or a general public or a lot of people to get you to do something that you normally wouldn't do, right? So click a link, open a something that was attached that maybe runs something in the background, anything like that, right? 
the red flags, look at who it's from, what's in the body of the email, are there misspellings, are there links in the email, the things look weird in the email, right? That's the biggest thing. I'm sure we'll talk about secure communications, ProtonMail, things like that, but I use ProtonMail, and one thing that's really good about ProtonMail is when you look at the from address, it actually gives you the literal address of what it's from. So blah, blah, blah at blah, blah.com. What people can do, if I go to gmail.com, you can put your name as whatever you want. So I create an account at Gmail. It's called Amazon Web Services. But the web address is hacker9371 at gmail.com. But when you open that email or when you get that email in a typical mailbox, that's not like Proton Mail that gives you settings to show everything. It'll say Amazon Web Services. Mm. Because that was the name of the person or the name of the account. And that's what confuses a lot of people as well. So when you hover over that name or you click show details, it'll show you some weird, absurd email address that it's coming from. That's another big one to check. And just keep in mind, they can make those look different based off the name of those accounts that they're sending it from. Oh, okay. So that was phishing emails. That's email specifically, right? There's also smishing SMS phishing. So those are the same things that we see coming into SMS and text messages. Essentially, you know, anytime there's kind of a breach, people just eat up all of these this data, all these emails and these phone numbers, and they create servers and bots and robocalls to just spam all of this stuff, right? It's like, hey, your UPS shipping has shipped. Click here to make any changes or view where it is, right? Yes. <laughs> what kind of device it has, it can be targeted and there can be certain things that happen by clicking that device. So I'm sure you've seen some of those text messages. It's not everyone's getting them these days. Yeah, some packet ran the random package in the warehouse. Deal. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always a link in the text message. They're like, click here to verify or whatever, like, you know, to check out some package. I'm like, no, absolutely yep. not. <laughs> and it, I'm to bring this up, I, I should have said it earlier, but like I don't 99% of the time I never click any of the links, emails, and text messages. First of all, unless I 100 percent know who it's from and what it's from. Always go online, find their website, and find their emails and phone numbers to contact. So same thing from scams with smishing and phishing. Oh, hey, you've been compromised. You have malware on a computer call, 1-800 MSFT support for Microsoft. But guess what? Microsoft doesn't own MSFT support phone number. So you're calling somebody else that they've been notified and said, hey, I create a list. If this phone number calls, this is who you are, and this is what they're calling for. So they know right away they're queued up hey, this person's calling for Microsoft support because their phone's compromised. Like, hello, this is Microsoft support. How can I help you? And they just go from there. Oh, wow. Yeah, people are getting really good at it these days. Same thing with robocalls. These are these ones that are automated. Sounds like an answering machine when you get a phone call because your phone number has been leaked somehow or been on some kind of breach data. One thing about robocalls to be aware of is I was reading an article and looking at some stuff where people are using robocalls and certain words in robocalls to get you to quote unquote agree with their terms. So the robocall will call you and say, hello. And you're like, hello. And you're like, are you there? And you say, yes, I'm there or yes. And they're trying to get around some laws that says you verbally agree to something by saying yes, they can use your information or use something for what they want to use it for. So now I don't give anything when robocalls. I keep my words to a minimum. That was just something I read. I don't know how much it's really being used right now, but keep in mind, people are coming up with very devious tactics to get people to do what they want. And that's the next part, which is called social engineering. So these are all kind of using social engineering. The social engineering 
itself is getting someone to do something that you normally wouldn't do. And it came from social engineering because it used to be before much of the digital age, it was going to someone in person and saying, hey, Bob upstairs needs this document. Can you please get it for me from the back and I'll take it to him. And this guy has no idea who Bob is or have I no idea what this document is, but he needs that financial record to use it for his own investigation or something like that. So that's kind of where it originated. But now social engineering is taken to a whole new world in the digital age. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's alive and well. <laughs> like I said, phishing emails could be individual, spamming everybody. Sometimes you'll see you're on a group message. Watch out for the smishing attacks, test messages, anything like that, UPS. Don't ever click any of those links. Don't download anything. Don't open those attachments. Watch out for those robocalls. Watch out for those words that you're kind of using when the robocalls answer. They'll probably ask you a whole bunch of automated questions. If you think it's an automated voice, I would just disregard. And if they don't say who they are right away, it's not important. If they do say who they are, you can always call back them with the proper number and verify that it's the people that you were trying to. Okay. That's easy enough to do for sure. And then one last thing about that. I use AT&T. They have a third-party application that comes with their phone devices. They have a lot of built-in stuff now for spam. I highly recommend looking at what's included in your, your phone plans from a spam perspective. I think Verizon has one as well. You can essentially have it filter out spam phone numbers. So most phone companies keep a database of what numbers are listed on a spam database and it'll automatically block them or automatically send it straight to voice and all that kind of thing. So take a look at that. I'll find out what that is and we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, I know. That's good. Cool. So that's all I had for general awareness. And that was just like 100 level. There's a lot more out there. Main goal is to not be the lowest hanging fruit. You don't want to be an easy target. Now let's go on to browsers and Essentially, what kind of browsers should we use? What browsers are out there that we like to use? How can we customize those browsers to make us a little bit more safe? So one of the, probably the more popular ones out there in the security and privacy world is called Brave. It is an open source browser. And let's talk about open source real quick. So what open source means is it has all of the code available to view, which means third parties, individuals, can audit it, verify that they're not sending data to certain places or using data for certain things. It doesn't have online advertisements and trackers built into it by default, that kind of stuff. Brave is a very privacy-based centric browser from a privacy company. I love to use that because of that. I tend to lean more towards open source things and something that's not open source is your Windows operating system, your Mac operating system. That is not open source. Apple and Windows does not release that to anybody because they don't want to let out. They don't want to release the jewels to everybody so they could replicate it. But they also don't want everyone to know exactly what's happening in the back end. Mm, okay. Firefox, also open source. Firefox is good. They also have several different apps that go with it, a mail app, a VPN, things like that. But Firefox is moving towards kind of like being a business as well to make money. So they're like on that that gray area between being privacy centric and making money. So I'll just leave it at that. But they also have a huge extensions and, and marketplace for add-ons. I did want to mention Brave does have a marketplace from Chrome. I think they can use most of Chrome's marketplace add-ons. I think so, because I've got a bunch mm -hmm. of them. Yep. There's also Internet Explorer, Safari, Edge, Chrome, those kind of things. Most of them have decent marketplaces. I don't think anything is as big of a marketplace as Firefox since it's open source. You know, example would be, of course, Chrome has a big marketplace because everyone wants to develop 
applications for Chrome, but it goes through like an auditing stage and it has to do certain things to get admitted into the, the store as opposed to Firefox, which has more minimal requirements because it's open source. A couple of things about browsers that are good, incognito mode. So a lot of different browsers have these now. It could be something called similar to that, but this is good because it doesn't save the records in the history of what you're browsing with. So typically when you're on your Chrome browser, you go to something, the next day you're like, crap, what was that website I went to? Oh, let me go to settings, go to history. I can see where I went yesterday and bam, it's right there. Mm -hmm. And incognito mode, it kind of just brings up a private browser that doesn't keep track of nearly as much stuff. So it wouldn't show your history and trackers and advertisements and stuff like that. So if I do use a lot of these browsers, I will try to use the incognito mode version of that browser. Gotcha. It also separates, I guess, information from that browser. So if I had Chrome open and I was logged into Google account, Facebook, and like eBay, if I opened up a incognito mode browser or tab, it, I could go to eBay and all those websites and it wouldn't be logged in. And if I logged in again, if I opened up another incognito window, not a, a tab, but a window, it would also be separated of what, what they call containerized from those other browsers where it still would not take over that logged in websites to those other browsers or those other windows. The incognito mode that just comes with some of those browsers and you've got to turn toggle it on somewhere or is it an add-on? Yeah. So like uh, in, in Chrome, if you go to the top right ellipses, you can click new tab, new window, new incognito window. In Firefox, you click the little hamburger in the top right for settings. You'll have new tab, new window, private window for Firefox. And then if you go to Edge, it's new tab, new window, new in private window. So they're all similar to some okay. kind of private. But yeah, they all have that pretty much same capability. Next thing that's pretty big in these browsers is in the settings, you can change what your default search engine is. I want to talk about one specific search engine just because it's an easy go-to that I like. It's called DuckDuckGo. So keep in mind, Google and Bing, let's say the two biggest ones, these browsers want to give you what you think you're looking for in a search. So it uses an algorithm that also connects to all the stuff that you share, right? So if you have a lot of these privacy settings turned on where it allows your information, it's going to use all of that to give you what it thinks is best for you or what you're searching for. And it's not always, let me say this, it thinks what it's best for you from them as opposed to what you think you're searching for. So it's going to give you what it kind of wants to give you that's related to what you're searching for. DuckDuckGo, it has an algorithm, but that algorithm does not use information to profile you and give results based on that. So if you did side-by-side -side searches on the same word or same phrase between DuckDuckGo and some of those other ones, you should probably have, would have drastically different responses. DuckDuckGo will actually get info from those best sources on the web as opposed to like the most search source or something like that. So like if Google does it and it saw 1 million views in 30 minutes to black rights on Fox News, right? Mm -hmm. or quality or something like that that's just blowing up it's spreading on social media if it has misinformation or disinformation meaning it's wrong or they're trying to put something a little bit different out it'll still give you that as opposed to getting what's the truth behind what you're searching okay that makes sense 
Yeah. Okay. I know I spit out a whole bunch of information about that, but <laughs> it's no, but it's interesting. I kind of want to test it out now. So between DuckDuckGo and some of these other search engines you were mentioning, mm-hmm. and just to see test it side by side and see what pulls up. There's plenty of hot topics out there where I could test this out with for sure. So definitely. It's an election year, so this test That's is gonna true. happen. <laughs> with that said, be be crazy aware of what misinformation and disinformation is on social media and the web and things like that. It's unfortunately in our our world, all of the information we see is produced by algorithms. Same thing with Facebook, all social media platforms, things like that. So it's kind of unfortunate that not necessarily the correct information is spreading because how we search things and, and how we let people use our information. Yeah. But moving on. One thing that I like to do and customize a lot is browser extensions. So I use Brave, I use Firefox a lot for work, and even some of these extensions on like Chrome and Explore, Edge, that kind of stuff. But essentially, you can customize how you want to browse. And in my case, I like to tailor these for security and privacy reasons. So Firefox has browser extensions, add-ons. It has a huge marketplace. Like I said before, so does Chrome and sort of the other ones. Brave can use Chrome's marketplace for the most part. So Brave pretty much has a lot of these security and privacy things built in through add-ons that are just essentially already in the browser itself. So essentially you could make Firefox like the same as Brave, right? But out of the box, Brave is going to come out more secure and more private. Okay. But like I said, Firefox is open source. I use Firefox a lot and I customize it. So let's talk about, we'll say several extensions and add-ons that I like to use and I recommend that people use. And we'll kind of give some information around why they're good. Now, these are good. And then there will be a list attached to this too. So everyone can check yes. these out. Yes. Okay. First one, HTTPS everywhere. What this does is when you're browsing, a bank website is a good example. So when you go to your bank.com and it pops open like a little lock next to your web address and it says HTTPS, that means it's encrypted and secure. If you go to a general website, it might go to HTTP which means it has no encryption or anything like that. So what this does is it always forces it to use HTTPS if it has an HTTPS website or address associated with it. I will say not all websites have all parts of their websites built out in HTTPS as opposed to HTTP. So a lot of websites, especially older ones, would be built out in HTTP. So like hypertext transfer protocol, that's just how websites are built kind of. And then on parts that are needed, they'll have it built out with hypertext transfer protocol secure, which has the encryption built into it. So like back in the day, all of a bank website would be an HTTP, but when you go to the login portal, that would go into a secure part. And then Um, your banking information, that would go into a secure part. Gotcha. Okay. So it only uses HTTPS when it's there, but it's it's great to have. Next one, AdBlocker. UBlock Origin is one of the biggest ones. Been around for a long time. I use this one. But essentially what it does is it it filters the content. It blocks ads. It stops like coin mining. It blocks Peter Lowe. The Peter Lowe is like a very big tracker. If you've ever paid attention, like when people want to get, I guess, credit for something, like if you go to like, let's say... You go to Facebook.com and you see an advertisement and you click it. It goes through a tracker to show that you clicked through it through Facebook. So that company would know, hey, my marketing to Facebook is working because this person 
clicked it. And then it'll also say this person bought something or this bought, person bought so much stuff. So there's these trackers and Peter Lowe is one of those bigger ones that everything you're doing with that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It also blocks a lot of malicious URLs. So it keeps a database of bad links. Essentially, it'll let you know it's taken to a bad website. And it's got a whole bunch of lists that are built in that you can kind of customize. So a lot of customizable filters of what you want and don't want to browse. Okay. Another one is disable web RTC. What this does is there's certain settings and things that if you're using a VPN and you didn't have some settings correct or maybe didn't have this, something could actually grab your real IP address through your VPN or through this setting or I guess it's technically what kind of access some of these browsers have. So this is one of those settings to help disable that or prevent certain websites and certain things from gathering your real IP address if you're trying to mask it by using a VPN. Interesting. Okay. So it's the double protection there. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, some things require WebRTC to use. So example would be like if you were doing a lot of Google products. So if you're on a Google Meet meeting, regardless of what happens or what you're using, it's going to use WebRTC and get your original IP address. So it might not notify you or you might not know you think your VPN is up and running, but some things just don't work with like disabled WebRTC. And and that was as of a while ago. I'm pretty sure it still works that way. Don't quote me, but there are some things that require WebRTC to be in use. A lot of add-ons also have password managers. (laughs) So 1Password is an add-on, an extension that's on all of my browsers. Essentially, it reads the the extension itself will read the website that you're on and read the clickable boxes to be smart and tell you where it can put your credentials to log in. So I love that. It automatically helps save your password as well. So if I haven't even had a password on that website, if I sign into something, it'll say, hey, do you want to save this to one password? And bam, next time you're good to go and it's saved. Okay, perfect. Um, another big one is Privacy Badger. This is another ad blocker and tracker blocker. You don't necessarily need to have multiple different blocking extensions, but they do use different databases and block lists like that. So play around and see what you like best and do your own research on what you think is best for you. The next one is Decentralaeus, kind of spelled a little bit weird. We'll make sure it's included in the the show notes, but this kind of like emulates your CDN locally, which is your content delivery network. And kind of what it does is, And a lot of websites, when you do something, it's calling a library that can do functions for your computer on the front end through the network. This one will utilize some of these libraries and functions on your local machine to kind of help speed things up. And then it doesn't utilize trackers. So if it goes through the network, it might have trackers associated with it. This tries to use it locally to prevent that. There's also some man-in-the-middle attacks out there that can utilize the content delivery network. So if you're using some stuff that uses the CDN out in the network, it could do it. And what man in the middle attack is gaining access or doing something in the middle of your connection or communication. So think about like if you were going to a website, a man in the middle attack is going to say, hey, instead of going to that website, you're going to come to me, put your information through me, and then I'll go to the website to make sure I know what you're doing and can see what you're doing. So the user wouldn't know what's going on because the man that's in the middle doing the attack has everything set up where it looks like he's actually on the website, not routing through himself with a hacker and getting all, getting all that data. Okay. Wow. And a man in the middle attack is like a generic name. 
because that can be used for many, many different things. So it can be network attacks. It can be used for apps. It can be used for like databases and queries and things like that. It's just one of those ones that a lot of different attacks are associated or are commonly known as a man in the middle attack. Gotcha. All right, moving on. No script. This is a good one too. So this pretty much blocks executable content. It prevents cross-site scripting and click jacking. So what it does is when you go to a website, sometimes it'll run scripts and functions in the background when you go to that website. Or when you click something on that website, it automatically runs something. So this prevents that from happening. And if you think about it, this stuff shouldn't be happening anyways, but when people are nefarious and create malicious content, this stuff has to be figured out. All right, another really good one that is good generic general use, but they made it into a add-on or extension. I used to call it 10-minute mail. I don't know if it's called something else now. I know they have noop mail, temp mail, and a mailinator. But what these are, are temporary emails that can be used for throwaway accounts or gaining access to stuff. A great example would be like when you go to Starbucks, you're getting your coffee and you go to use their free internet. It says, hey, give me your name, email, and a zip code. You can go to tempmail.com or mailinator.com or use your extension and it'll give you an email that you can put in there that Starbucks will recognize as a real email to give you access. Hmm. Okay. And with that said, there's a lot of different types of these mail extensions and mail websites. A lot of websites and services won't recognize a lot of them because they've added it to their list of fake emails, but a lot of them do work. And a lot of them even go one step further. So if you wanted to get like a free account for one day at like Business Insider and you wanted to read an article, but it wants you to register and it sends you an email and you have to tell the email confirmation code. A lot of these might, or a lot of these will give you access to an email inbox for a short period of time to confirm that email address, which kind of takes the next step of security. So did you really use that as a throwaway account? Oh, okay. All right. That makes sense. Okay. Moving on. Cookie auto-delete. So I will say, I know Firefox, Brave, and I think even Chrome, Safari, a lot of these, they have it where you can delete cookies as you close the window. But this is a extension that allows you to do it the same way. So you can set the settings on here saying every time you close a tab or every time you close a browser window, it automatically deletes all your cookies. Cookies and cache, those are kind of things just used to help speed things up, to quote unquote, make your life better, that are used by companies to gather data and they use that data to make it better for you. Some websites can be cached. So you do them quicker. Information that you have could be in a cookie, just that kind of stuff. You see those pop up all the time and it's not fair to use such a pleasant name for them. But yeah, some websites, if, if you're blocking them too, you have a hard time getting into them. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of websites require cookies, which is in that sense, it's, storing a piece of the website in your browser that it can retrieve at any time pretty much right so it's going to automatically show a picture or that's why like sometimes if you for typing like google.com and it shows you a picture of google before you're even done like in a little window that's a cookie Mm, okay and you know and technically it's making it better for you it's grabbing it quicker because it has part of it in the, the browser to get to that website quicker it just has a whole bunch of data in it that doesn't need to be there Okay. And it could be someone could use that, exploit that for not great purposes too, I guess. 
Yeah, I'm sure there's definitely some kind of attacks that I mean, there's attacks that use cookies and cash and things like that. And I just don't want any of my extra data out there that doesn't need to be. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. One really good one that I like is called skip redirect. So what that is, is a ton of different websites out there use other site links and they redirect things through other sites to get to it. So if you've ever seen like the the URL changed like three or four times as you go to a website. And we also talked about some other stuff earlier that like the scripts can do this, all this kind of stuff, but like you don't want it to go through all this stuff. These are trackers that are going through there and you don't need to be doing that. So what it might look like online is sometimes you can, you can see it in the actual URL, but it'll say like something, something, something.com forward slash question mark redirect equals different website. Mm, okay. Website might also have another website. So something like that. Wow. All right. So this just causes it to bypass all that. It could break some things when we were talking about when someone clicks something and it goes to a tracker website, this will bypass that tracker website. But sometimes links won't work if they bypass some of those tracker websites. Okay. Because they want it to go to the tracker website. If the redirect doesn't have anything else after that, it won't know where to go. So what's the recommended go around? Like you're trying to get somewhere if you're if you're using the redirect and it essentially breaks it when you're trying to link through. Is there a safe way to get to that website then or no? Yeah, and I would say in pretty much almost all cases, you'll know what you're trying to click. So like, let's say it's on Facebook.com and it's saying like, oh, here's an Amazon.com Tupperware and it won't let you go through that link. You'd have to go to Amazon.com and search that Tupperware and find it, that kind of thing. Essentially go the, the long route, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Not really terribly long, but that that skips the in-between stuff. Okay. Yeah. And last one is called privacy redirect. Same thing, but it hides the refer of that. So it kind of keeps some information out of the history of what you've clicked. And like I said, it stops the third-party trackers and it doesn't log your data. Okay. Okay. I know I've been talking for way too long. Last <laughs> thing I want to go over is... Uh, just a quick review of the Firefox settings and what to be aware of in those settings and some things that you might want to look at the change. So feel free to go along with us if you're listening, but also refer back to this and make sure you do it properly. So let's say we're going through Firefox. I will say this was as of recently, but when we do these, these shows, settings change, different things change within those operating systems and those browsers. So just keep in mind, it might be similar, but not exactly the same. So Let's click settings. If you go into the general settings, go to the automatic updates part. We talked about it earlier. Make sure that automatic updates are checked so it automatically installs these updates. Next part, if you go into the home settings, there are two settings that use your data for personal suggestions. I always turn these off. I don't like it. These two are called recommended by Pocket. Pocket is kind of like someone that's partnered with Firefox. And the other one is called sponsored shortcuts. I would uncheck those and not use those. Hmm, Okay. Under the search setting, you can change your default search engine. So we talked about it earlier. If you wanted to use DuckDuckGo, you can change it to that instead of Google or Bing or Yahoo or whatever it is. The next part, privacy and settings. I I think on that first page, it gives you different types that you can use. I always set it to enhance tracking protection or whatever the equivalent is of being the most secure and private. Essentially, it enables all of the optional things for security and privacy. So read through those. That's also very informative to read through those and see what it's actually giving you. 
and what can be used. The next part is website privacy preferences. I check those boxes. Essentially, it's saying, saying don't track your data and don't share your data. Similar to that, the next part, cookie and site data. Like we talked with the extensions, you can have it, delete them when you close Firefox. Like the extension, look at those settings, but I usually turn it on where it deletes all the cookies when I close it. On that history part, I recommend not using history. It's tracking all your data. And I don't use Firefox's autofill option. The only autofill option I use for anything is my password manager. The next setting on there is Firefox suggest. I turn that off. It's pretty much saying Firefox wants to suggest something for you. And it's using your data to make that suggestion. The next one is permissions. Definitely read through that just so you can see what access you're giving Firefox and, and see what you can play with. You can see there what kind of websites have your access, look into those settings. You can also, there's a setting for blocking requests for those settings. So like an example would be turn off all requests for microphone or block all requests for your microphone. So we talked about some scripts running in the background and we, we had some extensions for that or executables. You might go to a website, you might click a link on there and it's going to automatically try to enable your microphone. Firefox can stop that automatically and not give it access to that. I have a question. I'm kind of interjecting in your Firefox list here, but if you have access to your microphone and camera turned off on your computer, period, like is, can these browsers still access that if you, if you haven't checked these permissions off? You want to get closest to the hardware level of control. So the operating system is going to be one step closer to that over the, the browser. Mm -hmm. So I would want to say no, right? If you have it turned off on your computer, will the browser access it when requested? It should be no. But when you, what kind of permissions did you give your browser? Does your browser have permissions to make hardware changes? So if you say yes on the browser, will it automatically enable it on your system? Okay. Yeah. So same thing. Like if you don't have it blocked on your browser, the website could request it, turning it on on your computer and the browser, you know, potentially if, if someone knows what, knows what they're doing. Mm, interesting. Okay. The, the only safe way is to disconnect it physically, which is not always possible, right? Right. Yeah, no. Okay, so privacy settings. There's a, a part in there to block pop-up windows or give you a warning when websites try to install data add-ons. I always keep those checked. Yeah, sometimes I forget that I blocked pop-ups and you have to go to the, the browser bar and click show this one box this one time because a website used the pop-up and I'm fine with that. I'd much rather do that and not get those bad windows that I don't want. The next part is Firefox data collection and use. Turn off all of these. I don't want to have any website or application using my data for their benefit in any way. So some people like to use targeted advertising and that kind of stuff and they wanna give up their free data. Hey, you do you, but I don't like anybody getting my data and using it, so. <laughs> My goal is to make everyone a little bit more privacy centric and not give their data away. Okay, perfect. So we're clear here, everyone, like that is the purpose of where we're going yep. with all of these recommendations. Yep. Everyone is monetizing your data and using your data to make money and to do other things with it that you don't want to do with it. Mm -hmm. All right, last section, security section. There's a whole bunch of boxes in here. I always like to block deceptive content downloads and unwanted software kind of what we talked about before it uses a database of, of bad things and it blocks those under the certificates section i recommend checking in the box that verifies certificates what that means is there are certificates that kind of show that the website is authentic 
and it will use those certificates as opposed to like a local certificate, check it and it'll do the most that it can to make sure that it's an authentic website. Also in the HTTPS, like we just uh, discussed earlier, you can enable it through Firefox to always use HTTPS when it has it. Last part of this section is called DNS. I use the max protection on that. Essentially, it's, it's always going to use it's always going to use a DNS server over your local DNS unless it needs to. And, and what that is is a domain name system. And, and what that does is it pretty much puts like IP addresses with websites and things like that. So it's it's going to use an up to date online database instead of using something on your local machine that could be wrong. Oh, okay. All right. No, that was hugely helpful. I'm gonna have to walk through this too because I do use Firefox sometimes too, but I'm gonna test this one out next and make sure everything's checked checked up and make sure I'm not handing out all this free information and data to whatever I'm like accessing on there. So no, this is yeah. super helpful. Yeah, so for those of you that followed along with this, for sure, that's it's not a terribly long list at all. So I, I don't know, I'll test it out. I'm not going to give anybody like some time ranges for doing this at all, but take your time and read through it. But anything, I don't have any other questions on my end at all, Cliff. Any last notes or anything from you before we close this one out? Quickly, everyone is different on how they like to use things. This is just a couple suggestions that can help provide a little bit more security and privacy to people. There's tons of different options out there. There's tons of different browsers. I, I think our goal together was to make people more aware of what's happening. And I think this did this. And this is just a couple suggestions that you can do to help with that. Right. And I don't I don't want people to feel overwhelmed because I think that was definitely that way at first. Uh, my husband came home with a lot of great suggestions on how to basically lock down everything. I mean, it is such a world where we're so connected. We're on all sorts of things and apps and social media without really realizing the whole background, the massive background to that whole world where we're scrolling through things thinking it's pretty like harmless, right? That's what it feels like. It's, it's, it's your relaxation time or whatever, but there's a lot going on on the other side of that. So the awareness is certainly helpful. Cliff, thank you for putting this all together. It's a ton of really good information. So I, I really hope people went through this, go back, listen to the parts where you need to follow along, pause, add, take a clip's recommendations there too. We will definitely include in the show notes some of the recommendations you had. I know uh, the password manager was a big one. Um, some of the browser recommendations that you had, the add-ons, that was a really good list too, just so people can check those out. Again, everyone, thank you for listening. We'll be back with more too. And in the meantime, you can always reach us via email. That's our risk mitigation at lsds.us and also off of our website, which is lsds.us. Cliff, thank you again. This was awesome time having you on here and I'm sure we will have you back for more. Thank you so much.